Our second lesson today is from 1 John, the third chapter, beginning with the first verse. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And all who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This epistle, this letter, 1 John, was written near the end of the first century after Christ. It was written, as some of you know, by the same person who wrote the gospel, Uh, that bears his name, the Gospel of John. It is the first of three letters that he penned. And unlike the letters of Paul that you're familiar with, uh, this is not addressed to a specific Christian community like the Ephesians or the Galatians. It's not addressed to a specific Christian leader like Timothy. Rather, this letter is more general It's written for the entire body of Christ as a statement of faith and a guide for our uh, living uh, as God's sons and daughters, children of the Lord. And in these uh, brief three verses, uh, John speaks to important topics for the church in every age. Um, He mentions our identity, doesn't he? Uh, You have an identity, I have an identity, but we share Uh, this common identity as children of God. See what love the Father has given us, sinners like you and a sinner like me, that we should be adopted into his family, that we should be children of God, and that's who who we are. Uh, Given this identity, the Lord has made of us a community. And this community, called the church, um, is sometimes difficult for the world to comprehend. It was difficult for the religious authorities and the political authorities in Rome to comprehend at the time of Christ. It's equally challenging for many people today who don't know the Lord to understand us. And that's why John says the reason the world doesn't know us, doesn't understand us, is because it doesn't yet know God. How can we expect non-believers to know what we know until they're led to the knowledge of Christ and his saving gospel? And then John addresses um, the destiny that we all share. And he says something very important in this day and age when so many people want to speculate on what heaven might be like. He reminds us that what we will be in our eternal home, it's yet to be revealed. No one fully knows, but we know enough. We know more than enough. We will be like God. We will be like Christ. We will be like the Holy Spirit. We will see the Lord in his glory face to face. Now, in this time frame, uh, nearing the end of the first century, when John wrote this letter, uh, the church was going through some very significant challenges and hardships and changes. Uh, Peter, and some of you know that Peter was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, 
had been arrested and executed. He was put to death on a cross. But he was crucified upside down because Peter didn't think that he was worthy of being crucified right side up in the same manner that Christ, his Lord and Savior, had been executed. Uh, Paul, the great missionary apostle, who had been jailed repeatedly during his ministry, had also been put to death. Uh, He was executed in Rome during the persecution that some of you know uh, took place under the Emperor Nero. Now, I want you to use your sanctified imagination this morning. Um, uh, Imagine that our biggest challenge is not a, a sound system that's got a few glitches when the pastor starts making announcements. Imagine our challenges are um, being arrested. And we're watching um, one another being put to death by the principalities and powers of this world. If we were being persecuted today the way the first century church was being persecuted, some of us might wonder, uh, what's this mean for us? And what, where do we go from here? I imagine some would be very afraid, right? And I imagine that even a few might choose to distance themselves from church affiliation because it might mean suffering. This was not hypothetical for the first century church. Those believers had to reflect on their life together, their identity, their community, their destiny in a world that kept throwing at them so much hatred and causing so much suffering. And thanks be to God, those early Christians chose to continue telling others who Christ is, why he came, why he died, the death he died, and what his resurrection means for all humanity. And even in the midst of that persecution and all that hardship, they continued sharing this powerful, profound message of God's love, God's divine agape love. And it was so hard for those who had yet to know Christ to understand this love back then. It's so different. It's so unique. It's so powerful. It's so precious because it's not of this world. It is divine. Our identity, you see, as children of God, is shaped and defined and guided by this holy love. The Christian message, year after year, century after century, is this message of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for us, that we might have faith in him and have eternal life. That's not the kind of love the world knows. But it's the kind of love we see in the man of sorrows and the gift of Jesus Christ. I don't have time this morning to go into detail. I've preached several sermon series on what Muslim Christians and Jews have in common and what we do not have in common and what divides us very clearly. Let me just say this morning that Muslims do not comprehend, do not understand this God of such love. God choosing willingly to die on a cross as a criminal, as an act of love, is contrary to their theology. Allah, for them, is a distant God who judges each man and woman according to how they keep or do not keep the laws of the Quran. And in order to enter paradise, you'd better do more good deeds than bad deeds Otherwise, you might not make it. And even then, depending on the predisposition of Allah, 
he might not let you go into paradise no matter how good you've been. Jihad is the only exception. And maybe now you can understand why so many young people have been willing to die that way. Because in jihad, if you die in this holy war, this struggle, then you go straight to paradise. But God choosing to die so that we might enter paradise because of his love and his grace and his mercy. Friends, just understand this. It is categorically contrary to everything the Quran teaches. Some of you have been blessed and inspired by the life and witness of a young Christian by the name of Nabil Karushi. He was, as some of you know, uh, a devout Muslim who came to faith in Jesus Christ when he read the Bible. And the God of love spoke to him through the word of Scripture. He came to love and follow Jesus as the true Savior and Son of God, having been taught throughout his childhood that Christians were not to be trusted, that they were practicing a false religion. And do you know that he died at the age of 34 from cancer? But in his short life, he touched thousands, hundreds of thousands of people with his witness and his books, one of which is entitled, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And please let me quote from Nabil for you this morning. After loving us with the most humble life and the most horrific death, Jesus told us, as I have loved you, go and love one another. So how could I consider myself a follower of Jesus if I was not willing to live as he lived, to die as he died, to love the unloved and give hope to the hopeless? And listen to these words from Nabil. You see, the gospel is not just an answer that works. Let me repeat that. The gospel is not just an answer that works. It is the only answer that will work. Some of you know that uh, my wife Kirsten and I, along with Pastor Watts and his wife Joy, were in Arizona earlier this month for the conference for senior pastors and spouses of our largest uh, congregations in our church body. And after that time in Carefree, some of you know where that is, uh, Kirsten and I had a little time to uh, rest and refresh and Prescott. And then we went to Sedona. And boy, oh boy, have you been to Sedona lately? Uh, I thought the New Age movement was kind of dying off, but it's really stronger than ever in Sedona. And I saw all the signs in the shops for various New Age trinkets and books and readings. Uh, followers of all these various New Age religions have equal trouble identifying with a God of love and Jesus Christ. Uh, New Age spirituality doesn't identify with the Word made flesh dying on a cross. A God who is present with us because He's died and been raised. A God who promises the gift of eternal life by grace and mercy. I want you to listen to these words from a very bright person, a very learned man, Dr. Edward Hollowell, a PhD in psychiatry, once served on the Harvard Medical School faculty. And this is from an article that he published um, not too long ago. And it takes us back in time 
as he's reflecting on uh, life and uh, the aftermath of what we remember as 9-11. Dr. Hollowell wrote, Around the time that 9-11 happened, many people, myself included, speculated that the tragedy would finally bring us all closer together. But in my studies, I've seen that we're more anxious now and using larger amounts of alcohol and anti-anxiety medications that we used to. I even find myself thinking about forever more than I used to. Can't we make life or at least the spirit of life last forever? May not my cousin Lynn who died now be in paradise? Might not I see her again there someday? So on a trip to London, I walked into a place called the Center for Psychic Studies and I had a reading. The woman who did the reading told me that Lynn wants us to know she's fine and she's there trying to get the rules changed so she can contact us. You may scoff at this, but now I'm thinking about what happens after death more than I did in the past and how to cherish whatever time I have left. And who knows? Who knows? Life just might go on forever. The teachings of Islam, psychic readings, New Age philosophies. It's all about trying to create a framework. Trying to make sense out of life. Trying to know our identity, why we're here, and what it's all about and preparing for what may or may not come when we finish this life on earth. And without Jesus, without a God of love and mercy, all religious talk about the here and the hereafter will always be based on uh, fear, uh, confusion, um, or speculation. Without God's love in Christ, a person will never realize their truest identity and the destiny that God wants for all of us. Friends, it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that proclaims the truth of God's love for all people. John announces this gospel message, we are his children now. Because we have found a way to make life last forever? No. Because we have connected with the right psychic reader and we now have a psychic connection to the hereafter? No. Uh, because we have done more good than bad? No. Because we engage in jihad? No. We are God's children now because the Father has given us love. A love that came with blood, flesh, and suffering. It is God's love that shapes and guides our community. And we shouldn't be too impatient with the non-believers and the doubters in our lives as we're hoping and praying that they will eventually come to understand Christ and Christian community. But it's hard for people to understand this. 
the reason the world does not know us yet is that it does not yet know God. Remember our Lord's words from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, the world thought it was getting rid of a troublemaker from Nazareth, when in reality they were crucifying the anointed one, the Savior of the world. So we cannot and we should not expect non-believers to immediately and fully comprehend the love that binds us together and makes of us a community. This loving, this forgiving, this praying even for our enemies, these marks of Christian community, it's challenging for non-believers to understand this. It doesn't make sense to those who don't yet know Christ. So how can you help others come to know the Savior? Isn't that our mission, to lead other people to Christ? If they know Christ already, we don't need to lead them. But that's why we're here. It's been the mission of this church for decades. I think you know the answer to how we lead people to Christ. Uh, before they listen to our words and our witness, they're watching us. They're observing us. Uh, they're seeing if we, um, if we walk our talk. And if this love that we proclaim is a love that we put into action. And this pulpit, my friends, it is a place that you, the congregation, have set aside for proclaiming the name of Jesus and his gospel of life. Uh, make no mistake, it's not a tool for entertainment. It's not a place for speculation. Uh, your pulpit, this pulpit, is where God's love and the power of the gospel is to be preached. And it's your lives, brothers and sisters, that are the means by which the world will come to know Jesus. Your love, your witness. Isn't this how the light of God's love shines in the darkness of this world? Our community, the church, has a message of hope for those who are afraid, for those who are desperately turning to psychic sinners, for those who are trapped in religions that still teach hate and intolerance instead of love and mercy. This Christian community of which we're a part is founded on a love that will not die. Our destiny is our eternal home with the Lord. And as for the future, we know it belongs to God. We know that we belong to God. We are His. We are His children. Those Christians in the first century when John wrote this letter faced so many uncertainties and hardships. But they knew that their eternal future was secure. Why? Because of Christ, who had already gone ahead of them to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. And though we don't yet know everything about our heavenly home, we do know this. We're going to be like Jesus. We're going to see him face to face, and we will live never to die again. This promise of heaven... This destiny of ours, this permanent place in the Father's house, is of great comfort. And I've observed, as I um, communicate with so many of my classmates from high school and college and beyond on social media, boy, isn't it interesting how when people get into their 60s and early 70s, they start thinking a lot more about heaven than they did when they were in their 20s or 30s. When you get older... When your friend dies, when you yourself are diagnosed with a serious illness, 
when sons and daughters die and leave us all too soon? Well, we start thinking about heaven, don't we? But I submit to you the promise of heaven is not just about a future hope. This promise, this destiny, transcends time. It's not bound by time and space. It reaches back this eternal home to bless us now. As a community with a God-given destiny, eternity has been taken care of. Heaven is your home. So we don't need to spend time speculating here and now what it might be like. We don't need to fear the grave. And that means we can get busy with our mission, with leading people to Christ. We can get busy for Christ's sake in the here and the now. Some of you remember a movie that came out years ago called The Shawshank Redemption. It's one of my favorites and I watch it once or twice a year. The two leading characters in this drama that takes place in a prison are Andy and Red and they're behind bars. They're discussing what it all means, what life is all about. And Andy says to Red, uh, get busy dying or get busy living. I think that's a gospel message. God wants his children, that means you, to get busy living, living large, living in this powerful, marvelous love, and living for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. May the peace that far surpasses all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord this day, and until, as the scriptures tell us, we see him face to face. Amen.